and welcome to Logan Sounds Off, where I talk about books, music and a whole lot more. I'm your host, Logan Kelly. Hello and welcome to Logan Sounds Off. Today I am interviewing the wonderful Terry Christian. Terry, how are you? No, I'm I'm fine, thanks. I'm I'm just pleased that somebody your your age would even know I was. I'm like something from the Ark with Noah. <laughs> well, it's brilliant to have you on. But first, I just want to ask, um, for those who don't know you or haven't watched um the sh- the word or listened to any of your radio shows, um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I mean, basically, I'm from Manchester. Um, I, I worked started working on the radio back in 1981. I got the job almost by accident because working class kids like me didn't get jobs in the media in those days. And I got a job for the BBC after the riots of 1981. So every kid that threw a petrol bomb or a stone at police uh, in Manchester in particular back in 1981 during the Moss Side riots helped me get gainfully employed in uh, you know the BBC, which was very kind of comfortably you know up middle class, and from there I went on to win various Sony Radio Awards for the best specialist music show. Because what what I was was I was a proper music nerd across every genre, whether it's rock, punk, what what was called jazz, funk, funk, soul, uh, reggae. I knew I knew what I knew about all of them at the time. That's what I did. I was a complete geek. I was out every single night of the week. You know, I didn't even drink much. You know, I maybe have a pint and a half. But I'd be out from like eight o'clock till two in the morning every night watching bands. And the weird thing was in those days when bands were up and coming, you know, so I remember going to see Culture Club, you know, with Boy George. Um, when when the only, it was about only 120 people in the audience for them, six weeks before they went to number one, that little club in Derby called the Blue Note. And... You know, bands in those days, they wouldn't, the main band wouldn't go on stage till 12.30, you know, half 12, half past midnight, you know, and the young people would still go. And then they'd get home at three o'clock and a lot of them would have to get up at six or seven o'clock in the morning to go to work. Not me, because I worked on the radio. Um, so I did that for years, won, won these National Sony Radio Awards. But at the time, there was no way with a Manchester accent like mine that I would have got a job, you know, working on national national radio i did do little bits for radio one at the time and i did a show aimed at kind of fifth and sixth formers on radio four where you know it's just all kind of you know youth type problems it was a bit boring it wasn't what i wanted to do but i went to work for the second biggest commercial station in the uk which is piccadilly key 103 in manchester my hometown and because i had this great reputation they let me play whatever I wanted every night, six till nine o'clock. So I was playing all what became known as the kind of Manchester Explosion or Manchester at the time. Bands like the Happy Mondays, the Stone Roses, the Inspiral Carpets, the Charlatans, you know, a guy called Gerald, you know, he did Voodoo Ray, all this, all this stuff that they'd never been playing as a station. And so it kind of took off and that scene exploded then in the next year. And it was in all the national music papers and it was, you know, on TV, they were talking about all this stuff coming out of Manchester, and I was the guy playing it. But I got sacked for playing too much obscure music, you know, at the time. And I remember the, the the Manchester Evening News wrote about it, and uh, the guy asked me for a quote, you know, because uh, the guy who sat me said, "Well, I don't think we should be playing, you know, two or three tracks by the Stone Roses every night. They're a bit obscure." And I said, "Listen, Shakespeare is obscure if you're illiterate." Great quote. So because of that, when they were making this new show in London, a TV show, you know, aimed at young people, um, they thought Manchester was trendy. It was kind of hip at the time. So they thought, well, let's get one of them. And that's how I ended up getting that, getting that job on the TV, which was strange because TV was all very posh kids. You know, it was all Tar- Tarquin and Sebastian and Tristram and Quentin, you know, and Rupert, names like that, like something out of Downton Abbey. And uh, and, and then there was me. And so it was a strange show. So, so that show, it became, because obviously I didn't want to have any rubbish on it. 
So even on the second show, we had bands like the Charlatans and the Pixies on. You know, we gave First TV. You've got Nirvana. Is that Nirvana on your wall? You know, oh, yeah, it actually, yeah, yeah, it's a Nirvana poster. Yeah, so we gave Nirvana their first ever TV in uh, in Europe, doing Smells Like Teen Spirit live on the word. Um, we gave Oasis their first ever TV when nobody had heard of them. But, you know, obviously I knew them from Manchester. And also, you know, my, well, the mother of my kids was their plugger, their radio plugger, their promoter of, you know, to radio and TV at the time. And this was their first single. And Noel Gallagher's girlfriend at the time, Louise Jones, worked for my ex-missus in her office. So I was getting pestered all the time to try and get them on. Uh, so I did it. It took me six weeks of arguing with Sebastian, Tristram, Quentin, Tarquin and Rupert to get them on. So it was good in that way. And it was good for me. It meant, you know, for the, for the five years that the word was on, I got about 17 different bands from Manchester on that show. And some of them were on three or four times, like the Charlatans, uh, James, the Happy Mondays. You know, they were on quite a lot of times. So, you know, I mean, it was good. So that's what I became known for. Then I've done other stuff since, even like Celebrity Big Brother. I don't think I've done anything while you've been around. Celebrity Master Chef the other week. Oh, God, I was cheated. Oh, Celebrity Christmas Bake Off. I mean, God, who does that? Not me. I should have just gone to Greg's. You don't have Greg's, do you, in Ireland? Uh, no. It's that Wait. sort of pie shop. I don't think we do, but I, I'd probably be wrong. But I don't think we have Greg's in Ireland, no. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's not great. It's just like a pie shop, so it sells pies and pastries and stuff. So that's what I, that's what I felt I should have done when I was on, you know, Celebrity Bake Off, the 40th anniversary. That made me feel old. When, when you're on something that is the 40th anniversary of Channel 4. Jesus. <laughs> Pardon my French. But, yeah, anyway, so so that that's basically who I am. Someone old who's been around, but, you know, I, I kind of met all the kind of cool people. I remember when Manchester wasn't cool at all. You know, so when I was 16, it was like, you know, it's just a kind of quite a rough place, really. Uh, it had good nightlife, but it didn't have... There have been bands out of Manchester that have been big, but not not kind of really cool bands. And then suddenly a, a lad who was in my class at primary school was a friend of mine. And then also at secondary school started drumming with a band called Buzzcocks. And they were one of the very first punk band, you know, uh, punk bands back in 1976 yeah. called John Mark, yeah. uh, M-A-H-E-R, Mark, because obviously we're all Irish descent. He just lived on Milner Street in Old Trafford. And it was strange to, for me because I was in like the lower six going in, you know, going in doing my A-levels and he left sort of May time, you know, just before the end of the lower six to go full time with, with Buzzcocks, um, you know, and, and and they they became one of the big punk bands from outside of London, uh, the Buzzcocks, you know, and I've hit records and yeah. stuff, you know, but yeah. The Buzzcocks are very, very good. They are actually. <laughs> How do you know about the Buzzcocks? Well, like, if you can see back there, you can see the top shelf. Yeah. I have a Buzzcock CD there, and I used to listen to that a load. And my dad, like, growing up, I would be able to sing the chorus of Fast Car when I was four. <laughs> Fast Cars? Oh, yeah. Another music from a different kitchen. So yeah. when John Marr was a drummer, he was a great drummer. and uh, But his favourite band was Slade. And there's a great photo of him doing the rounds. He's in my first communion photo. <laughs> you know, stood at the back. <laughs> and he stood at the back behind Canon O'Donnell. And because I was one of the short, shorter ones, I'm neat. I'm kind of sitting cross-legged out in the front in front of Canon O'Donnell. But yeah, Buzzcocks. So I mean, actually, Buzzcocks. So Pete Shabby, his real name is Pete McNeish. And you know, so he was the lead singer. He was he was Irish descent. Uh Steve Garvey, Irish descent. So, I mean, nearly every Manchester band is all Irish descent, all the Smiths, all the, you know what I mean? Because there's so many Irish guys from Manchester, even a lot of the footballers. Uh, Trevor Sinclair, who played for Man City, West Ham and Queen's Park Rangers, and also played for England in uh, the 2002 World Cup, a winger. His mum is from uh, Sligo. But he played oh, for wait. England instead, you know. Wow. But yeah, so so I went to school with him. So when they took off, you know, there was all this stuff. Suddenly Manchester was kind of cool because everyone wanted to be like Buzzcocks. And all the bands supported them. So Joy Division, who then became New Order, started off supporting Buzzcocks. 
a band called The Fall did as well. And then obviously I met people like Tony Wilson himself, Factory Records and the Hacienda. So it was a great time to be alive. You know, it's quite an exciting time from my point of view. But I mean, you know, really, should you be listening to Buzzcocks at your age? Well, like some of the songs. Yeah. Like Fast Cars, other ones I'd stay away from. But no, <laughs> some well, like... I mean, with my lads, I just let them pick their own tunes. But I knew that they were going to be all right when, when my oldest lad is 25 now, when he was only four. He was watching Top of the Pops with me and he turned around and he said, do you know what, Dad? I said, what? He said, all this music is all right, isn't it, really? I said, yeah, I suppose so. You know, thinking, well, not really. And he went, he went, but it's all rubbish, isn't it, compared to Eminem? And I thought, son, you're right. You are right. You know, compared to Eminem, you know, without without me, there's no controversy. You are right. So we got it spot on. But it's kind of an... And then the younger lad, I remember he was listening to me, listening to The Clash in the car. And The Clash had a song called Tommy Gun. And oh, then, I know I Tommy Gun. Clash hey. brilliant as well. One of my favorite bands. Yeah, so he but so he heard that and he downloaded it onto his Xbox and I came home one night. He shouldn't have been playing, he was too young to be playing on it. He was to playing that that game where they shoot the zombies, you know, with his mate. And they were playing that Tommy gun through his Xbox while they were shooting them with Thompson submachine guns. Great game for a nine-year-old. <laughs> not suitable he shouldn't have been playing he shouldn't have been playing Call of Duty or whatever it was at that age should he oh my that god that's that's, that, <laughs> that's mad though that's that's a very very funny and that's an amazing bio you've just told me a lot about yourself some of it I knew and others were very interesting especially about the drummer of the buzzcocks was in your first communion photo I I'll will send never it, yeah. forget that. <laughs> I'll send you the photo. That is, and that Karen is, O'Donnell in the photograph was Sir Matt Busby, the really famous Manchester United manager. He was his parish priest. Canon <laughs> you know, oh O'Donnell. You know, so when the Munich air disaster happened, that it was that, you know, they, they they would be going to mass at St. Alphonsus in Old Trafford all the time, you know, Matt Busby's family, because he, he he nearly died after the crash. As, as did eight, eight Manchester United players at the time. But there you, know, you go. Legendary. Crazy. And you were saying there about that you grew up in an Irish family. Um, you were growing up in an Irish family, um, but in Manchester. And I wanted to ask, did that influence the music that you listened to since you had Irish parents? Well, yeah, but I mean, well, the strange thing is, because my mum moved over when she was four, she wasn't... She wasn't like, you know, dead Irish in that way, you know, culturally speaking, because she'd had quite a rough tough upbringing. She was the seventh of eight kids. And uh, her mum, my grandma, I mean, all my grandparents were all born in the 19th century. So my mum's dad was born in 1886. And I've got his joining up papers from 1904. And he's working in Dublin as a stevedore on the docks, and he joins the Connaught Rangers, who were like a, a regiment in the British Army, known as the Devil's Own. They got disbanded, obviously, you know, once Ireland became independent, but they were a well-known regiment. They broke the Cossack charge in the uh, Crimean War, the Battle of Balaclava, and they were like sh what, what they called shock troops, a bit like the paratroopers now, where they would be sent in where there were high casualties, but it was a glamour regiment. And he joined them, because he wanted shoes. You know, that's how poor people were in Dublin at the time. My dad's, my dad's dad died when he was six, and he grew up in the tenements on Augustine Street in the Liberties area of Dublin. And so his kind of music taste, he used to love a song called, uh, is it Liberty Boy by Brendan Grace, I think. He was like, I think he was like some sort of comedian, but he'd make the odd record, Brendan Grace, Liberty Boy. But obviously we had like that, that, uh, album of Irish rebel songs <laughs> but my mum didn't like it my dad would put it on every now and then with Kevin Barry on and uh, the boys of Kill Michael and the wearing of the green and um, yeah Roddy McCauley had that one on and uh, Bula Vogue you know in Bula Vogue as the sun was setting all the bright main meadows of Shelmalier a rebel hand set the heather blazing and bought the neighbours from far and near obviously from the 1798 rebellion the Croppies rebellion wasn't it um, yeah. you know, the Battle of Vinegar Hill and all that so we had that stuff 
but it was like being Irish didn't well, didn't feel as if you were cool, you know. And and then the Irish themselves are quite tribal because my mum and dad were Dubliners, so my dad used to go to a particular pub. Uh, well, there were three pubs that were Dubliners pubs. You know, they, they'd avoid the cult cheese, as my dad used to say, <laughs> and then they'd have their pubs too. And they would go tend to go to the Irish clubs, whereas my dad would just go. So he, his best mate, my dad's best mate, who was from Dublin, was a guy called Tommy Cody. And he is the footballer, John Sheridan's granddad. And John Sheridan played for the Republic of Ireland in the 1994 World Cup. He was a midfielder, so he played for Nottingham Forest, Sheffield Wednesday and Leeds United, although he was born in Stratford. But, you know, his parents were Irish too. So my dad, my dad was best friends with his granddad. Um, so, you know, so everyone was sort of Irish. I remember going out with a girl when I was about 15, no, 15 or 16, that's it. Uh, I, still, I still speak to her now, Margaret Donegan. And then I found out, I didn't even know this, half my mates were cousins. <laughs> well, that's not good, you know. Thought, all right, time to move on. Oh Very pretty girl, but you don't want that, do you? <laughs> to find out half your friends are, are your girlfriend's cousin when you're 15. No, forget it. Um, so, I mean, it was a great area to grow up in, you know, obviously. And it was like, but, you know, that sense of Irishness, we didn't really have. You know, you'd hear the odd story. You know, you get memories like my mum's dad. He was a regular in the British Army, so he was in World War One. While he was away at World War One, her older brother and older sister were born, and her mum, Bridget, uh, my mum was a Cullen. She lived on Moore Street in Dublin, and that was where the Easter Rebels surrendered, made their last stand, and surrendered. And she witnessed that surrender of the Easter Rebels. And also when they did it, to stop everyone in the tenements overlooking, you know, because they were on one side, the tenements were on the other. And uh, the British actually fired shots just to make everybody step back from the window. Because obviously they were like get punching them and kicking them and what have you, you know, because obviously they killed, they've been killing their mates, haven't they? You know, let's be fair. Plus there was a war on and they didn't want all this going on. And uh, the the story that my that my grandma passed on was like a bullet went through. There was a one of the neighbours was leaning out the window with a daughter, witnessing this, and one bullet went through both of them and killed them instantly. You know, oh yeah, she was weird. She was weird. Uh, my, my, my grandma Bridget. It was quite funny because um, my niece is trying to write a book about her because she had such a weird, interesting life. She was in service in Belfast before World War One. You know, back in nineteen ten. And uh, we got stoned there and everything. Because obviously she was from the South. She was obviously Catholic. You know what I mean? From being from Dublin. And, uh, you know, whenever they'd have, like, riots and stuff up there, they'd, they'd start attacking people, especially if she'd be working in a Protestant area, you know, in service. Um, and then, uh, what is it? But but it was quite funny. And I remember, like, my niece asking me mum when she was alive, uh, mum, what, what was your mum like? And my mum went, she was a bleeding bitch. <laughs> Which, yeah, sounds it, you know. I mean, she, she died in 1965. She'd gone, so I was only like four when she died. But it, So I can't remember meeting her because she got a bit too lally. Um, but, yeah, you know, and like my granddad, my mum's dad, he died in 1938 because he was gassed in World War One and taken prisoner by the Germans in March 1918 and never really recovered, you know what I mean? So both my granddads, none of them made it through the 1930s, <laughs> neither granddad. They didn't even make it to World War Two. So it's strange, isn't it? But that's because I'm 63, even though I look great. <laughs> but but to think that it gets, but I'm do. the fourth of six kids. <laughs> no, no, but I'm the fourth of six kids. So my mum was the seventh of eight. So you can see how it stretches right back. You know, I mean, if I, if I go on, who do you think you are? I'll be getting to this before I get to my great granddad. I'll be going back to before the Napoleonic Wars. <laughs> the funny thing is about uh, the name Christian. We found out by accident years ago that it's a Manx name. It comes from the Isle of Man. Now, my dad was a real Dubliner, so we're going, yeah, we're not from the Isle of Man, you know, we're from Dublin, blah, blah, blah. And he'd be going banging on about this all the time. So, well, you know, they, they say that it's Manx. Maybe it is. Anyway, my younger brother, Kevin, he was tracing back the family tree. 
And we got back as far as a guy called Thomas Christian, who was our great-granddad, born in 1831. He was a farm labourer in the outskirts of Dublin, step aside that area, you know, in the Dublin mountains. <laughs> anyway, our Kev got, got back one further to his, you know, to my dad's great-granddad, our great-great-granddad, William Christian, born in the parish of German, Peel in the Isle of Man in 1805. And he came over to Dublin because Dublin was like, I think it was the second city of empire at that time. You know, it was a really rich trading port and it was a big city. You can see it when you go there now, you know, the massive wide streets, the wealth that would have been in there in the old days and everything. And um, so, yeah, so the, him and his wife, Esther Quilliam, came over from the Isle of Man in like... I don't know, sort of 1825 or something, and had a family there. You know, so that's it. So my, so my dad wasn't as Irish as he thought he was. He's Manx. <laughs> that's a horrible place as well, isn't it, the Isle of Man? <laughs> well, the only... I actually have seen a little bit about the Isle of Man, and what I thought is very dangerous, but also it looks very cool, is the Isle of Man TT. That's all I've really seen mm, in the well, Isle of Man. People die in that every year. I know it's awful. Yeah, it's bad in that way, but yeah, yeah, the Isle of Man. I mean, we went once for a couple of days, but you know, yeah, just, it wasn't wasn't particularly great. Fair <laughs> enough. And um, so next, my next question is: um, Growing up in Manchester, there were some brilliant bands coming up onto the scene, like Joy Division and the Buzzcocks, um, to name a few, because there were so many, as you would know. How was that being? alive at that time being able to see um manchester progress into this amazing well, well, it, well it, it, it happened music. by degrees because manchester was massive in the 1960s because they had bands like the hollies herman's hermits who outsold the beatles in america in 1965 uh wayne fontana and the mind benders you know did groovy kind of love um you know even even graham nash out of the hollies then joined crosby stills nash and young um, yeah. And and I mean, those, those bands, there was, there was actually a week, one week in 1965, where Manchester bands were numbers one, two and three in the US Billboard charts. And for six weeks from the end of April 1965 till the end of June, Manchester bands were number one in the US Billboard charts. But what we'd never been was cool. These are kind of pop bands, really. You know, Herms, Hermits, I'm into something good. You know, something tells me I'm into some. You know, Wayne Fontana and the Mindbenders, Groovy Kind of Love, you know, the Hollies, Bus Stop, and uh, The Air That I Breathe, and uh, what, what is it? Uh, he Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother. All these bands were big. Then we had a band called 10CC in the 70s who did I'm Not In Love, and they were cool. They were copied by Queen, really, you know, with Bohemian Rhapsody. That was, that was based in many ways on a, a song that, uh, 10cc did called Unui One Night in Paris. But 10cc, because we were making a lot of money, set up a studio called Strawberry in Stockport, you know, just outside Manchester, you know, eight miles from Manchester City Centre, which was a world class recording studio, a state of the art. And it's the first one from outside of the south of England. And uh, that's where Joy Division recorded their first album. And using that studio, Manchester created its own kind of you know, sort of mini scene, you know, so Simply Red recorded there. I mean, even you 2 went over and recorded stuff at Strawberry. Um, and then the, there was the first black British group to get to number one in the charts were from Manchester in 1974. And a guy whose mum was Irish, Marcel, uh, sorry, his dad was Irish, Marcel King, but he, he was mixed race, you know, he was dual heritage. Uh, so, you know, he, he's Jamaican on one side and Irish on the other. And uh, it was a song called Sad Sweet Dreamer. He was only 15. And he went to the, the rival grammar school to me. He was a few years old. But it was like, uh, well, they won like this big talent competition, a bit like Britain's Got Talent called New Faces that used to be on on Saturday night. And uh, Sweet Sensation won it. They were an eight-piece band. But they got to number one in 1974. And because he lived around our way, you know, Wally Range, Moss Side, Old Trafford, Hume, in a city, Manchester, just south of it, um, he was like someone everyone talked about him. You know, to have someone just down the road who was like number one in the charts. You know, that was bigger than being a footballer. Because funny enough, we didn't you didn't know as many footballers as you thought. You know, he'd come through the youth system. And most of the Manchester lads seemed to play for City in those days, you know, later on getting into the 70s. 
or else would play for other teams, like Rennie Moses, who was a brilliant player. He was from Moss Side. Manchester United did buy him later on, but he was in the famous West Bromwich Albion team, you know, with uh, Brian Robson and, you know, uh, Sewell Regis and Laurie Cunningham, who's, you know, he's similar to... He, they, they used to call Laurie Cunningham the black best because he was like George Best, that level of skill. He ended up playing for Real Madrid. I think he was the first uh, English player to go and play for Real Madrid, Laurie Cunningham. But, you know, so... It was kind of exciting to see it all. I mean, you'd be surprised that what the stuff that you wouldn't know is from Manchester, because a lot of the black music from Manchester, people aren't aware that it's from Manchester. So uh, there was a band called LMC, Take Me to the Clouds Above, got to number one in the charts. Rachel McFarlane, the singer. Loveland, come on, grab somebody, let the music lift you up. Again, with Rachel McFarlane. Uh, the girl who sang with Urban Cookie Collective, they were a Manchester band, The Key, The Secret. Uh, which, again, is a great dance tune. Um, even the guy who produced Cotton Eye Joe by Rednecks, my mate Johnny J, he's from like Cheetah Mill. He produced the very first hip-hop record out of Manchester. He also did all the Gabrielle stuff, like Dreams, all the dance mixes that made her a big hit in America. And then he did, like, Dr. Alban and uh, Rizala, uh, you know, just loads of stuff. Also, Urban Cookie Collective, he, uh, he produced. But he started out as a DJ, Johnny. And uh, he just thought, well, you know, he got into mixing and producing. He knew what, what made people dance. And that was his expertise. So there's so many people, you know, there's so much stuff, you know, that's quite groundbreaking has come out of Manchester. You know, even even the fashions, you know, I mean, it's more, I suppose, you know, something that your dad might remember. There was a, a trendy club in London called the Wag Club in the early 80s. And the whole look of the Wag Club came from this dance group from Moss Side called the Jazz Defectors. And what they did was to make themselves stand out, you know, because they'd have these dance battles. They dressed in old 1950s style suits, you know, that they bought secondhand. But they but used to spend a lot of money to get the shoes right, you know, the brogues that were kind of like slippy and state of the art. So they looked really cool when they go into these dance competitions in London. And they'd often go to the wag club and everyone started dressing a bit like them, you know, with the zoot suits and the kind of, you know, the baggy suits and the, you know, that sort of jazz type look from the 40s and 50s. And they bought that down there from Manchester. I'm a right geek, aren't I? I'm a proper yeah. nerd. That's my my life as a nerd. No, that's no, what this I is. Mean, I mean, I'm the exact same, but that's some amazing info. Wow. Um, And actually now I want to go on to... um. I want to move on from Manchester and go on to some of your accomplishments. And um, the first one that I want to talk about is in 91, 90, sorry, 1991, um, you appeared on Devil's Advocate. And this oh, said and to be... 1981. Oh, sorry, sorry, no. Eight, my, my, my mind's gone. I'm so sorry, Terry. I'm <laughs> no, so sorry. I do sorry. it all the time. Never apologise. Uh, <laughs> Just move on. That's it. <laughs> but anyways, in 1981... You appeared on Devil's Advocate, and um, this led to you being offered your own show, Barbed Wireless, a uh, brilliant name, on BBC Radio Derby. Um, and that won the best music category, as you're saying at the Sony um Radio Sony Awards. Awards. Yeah, yeah, in 1985 and 1986. Um, so how did you find this time of having your own radio show, and did you always want to do it? Well, no, because it was the best time of my life. Because you've got to remember, I came from a big family, then suddenly I moved to Derby. I didn't have a clue about Derby. I remember all I had when I moved there was two weeks' dole money <laughs> and about 60 quid left from the fee that I'd got for, you know, for the last the last Devil's Advocate one where they just used six of us and they paid us £90 each. So I needed to borrow a bit more money you know, before Christmas, because I started the second week, December the 7th, 1981, freezing that, that winter. It was snow everywhere for about six weeks, you know, iced up. And uh, my dad lent me 40 quid. <laughs> 40 quid. I couldn't even find anywhere to live, you know, I didn't have a deposit. <laughs> I remember, like, uh, panicking when I went there, because I, I didn't actually go on air to do my first show until January the 4th, 1982, we were like building up all interviews. I remember going to interview UB40, who were massive at the time, in the drummer Jim Brown's flat the day after Boxing Day 1981. And it was so weird. And because I'd been on the telly, and you know, I was a bit, I suppose, kind of left wing and all that at the time, because I was an unemployed kid. 
and they they were and they were quite political. UB forty. I remember like Jim Brown opening the door. Oh no, his girlfriend opened the door to me. And she went, "Bloody hell, Jim! It's that lad off the telly." <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm, I'm like thinking I'm meeting them and they're famous. And uh, so and then Ali Campbell, the lead singer, came round. You know, and I interviewed them, and you know, so it's just sort of weird like that. You know, to to just try everything, and then also I'd always been into music, but records used to be expensive. I mean, yeah. I can remember. Well, I can remember when I was like 16, I bought what they used to call it a league match ticket book. So it was like a season ticket, but only for home games at Old Trafford as a junior. So for 21 Manchester United home games for 1976-77 season, it cost £7. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was cheap football in them days, and and that was with nine internationals in that United side. You know, we we beat Liverpool in the FA Cup final. Stop them from being the first team to do the treble because <laughs> they won the league and they won the European Cup. But we beat them two one, and we only had one shot on target. Our goal was a shot off target that hit a player called Jimmy Green off on the back and then rebounded in Liverpool's net. I mean, he was a United player, but he was leaving McCarry's shot. It was going out for a goal kick, and it hit him on the back and bounced in. That was our winning goal. That's so, anyway, you know, so that year, and I remember I paid £7 for that. About four weeks later, an album came out that I wanted to buy, and it was a double album by Stevie Wonder, and it also had a seven-inch single in it as well because there were that many tracks on it called Songs in the Key of Life. And that album cost... £6.20. So one album cost 80 pence less than a season ticket for 21 games for United. So obviously when I went working on the radio, they gave you free records because you played them. And I used to feel a bit guilty. I would, I didn't feel like I was doing them a favour. I'd be going, oh, uh, can you send me that Echo in the Bunnymen album? Can you send me this? Can I have that? And then you'd interview anyone who was coming, you know, locally, you know, like that. So I did like Culture Club, I interviewed The Fall, I interviewed an old blues guy who was fantastic called Bo Diddley, a real legend. You know, he's from like, you know, the, he sort of virtually invented rock and roll, Bo Diddley. But he was yeah. a black guy, so everybody ripped him off and ripped off his sound, including the Rolling Stones in the early days. So, you know, I mean, it was just so great. It was the best time of my life. I had my own flat, eventually, even though it looked terrible. I was a guy. I got free to all the gigs. I had my own radio show. I could play what I wanted. Do you know what I mean? I even put bands on later and managed bands. And the women loved me back then. Fantastic. <laughs> what can great. I say? I mean... You summed it up all there, and now... <laughs> I was living in heaven. You didn't need money because all I fulfilled all my ambitions. <laughs> you know? I mean, it worked out perfectly. And now I want to move on a bit, going a bit later. Um, in 1989, you wrote um, the Word page in the Manchester Evening News, where you focused on the Manchester music scene, which led to you becoming a host on Channel 4's the word in 1990. Well, I how gave you the it, name. Well, how did it make you feel to see your writings inspire a show like The Word? Because well, it did, obviously, well, it they, no, obviously, well, obviously, they got the name from your. No, thing. What, what happened was I was doing another radio show. I was doing one on Sunset Radio, which was Britain's first black music station. Then I was doing a, an indie station called KFM. That was before XFM. This was the first official indie type station that was based in Stockport. And there I worked with a guy called Craig Cash and a woman called Carolina Hearn, who went on to write The Royal Family and Mrs. Merton and all that stuff. And Craig was one of my best mates. I mean, Caroline, Carolina Hearn, if you ever watch her stuff, she's very funny. But she was Irish descent on both sides as well. Um, and then Craig was a big City fan, but he's very funny. So he does the voiceover on Gogglebox, Craig Cash. It's him oh. doing the voiceover. So oh, I, I worked with okay. him and then a guy who became a writer, a bit like Louis Theroux. He wrote loads of stuff, you know, UFOs and uh, the psychopath test and the men who stare at goats that got made into a film. John Ronson, and he was my sidekick on the show. So we, we did that. And then I got an audition for this show that didn't have a name. So on that, I had a lot of ideas. I looked younger than I was. And what happened was... It, this, even when we decided we were going to do the show, what the format was going to be, which was going to be similar to my radio show, you know, where I kept guests in together. We tried to play, you know, more cutting edge music 
you know what I mean, and mix it up a bit more, you know, so keep it accessible. But, you know, so we we had a rule on the word, a rule of thumb was like one kind of cool guitar band like Nirvana, one black group or black artist, whether it's Mary J. Blige, Snoop Dogg, you know, all of their first TV on the word uh, in this country, and then maybe one pop act. So we'd have like East 17 or someone like that. You know, I mean, it, so it wouldn't be, but it was important to me, you know, growing up in an area where you're either Irish descent or, you know, West Indian, basically, that we we did put someone black on the telly because I remember like, we, we you know, you're never really allowed in each other's houses, but you could go in the hallway, you know, playing football cards. We used to play like a game called Topsies. And if anybody black appeared on a TV show, everyone would get called into the living room, you know, get, you, because they never saw their old faces. They never saw anyone black on the TV in those days. So wow. I thought, you know, obviously, I thought, so let's make sure we always have at least one black person on the show every week, just so you're going to see someone who looks like you. And, I mean, obviously, if you're into music, that's not hard. So we had uh, we gave, um, Dave Chappelle when he was only 18. His first TV in Britain was on our show. No, it might have been 20, and he came on. So he came on as a guest on our show, Dave Chappelle when he was dead young on his very first visit to Britain. And in fact, I know a girl from Manchester, this black girl called uh, Karen Gabay, who still works at the BBC now. And it was her and her mates had come down and they took him out that night <laughs> because he was only 20, 19 or 20. And obviously in the USA, you can't drink at that age. But over here you can. So it's party time for him, you know, being taken out, uh, Dave Chappelle. So, you know, that, that was the exciting thing, but they couldn't find a, a name for the show. And the show was originally on at, on at 6 o'clock on a Friday night for the first 12 weeks, and it, no, 11 weeks, and it moved to 11 o'clock, you know, a late-night slot, which suited it better. But yeah. that was the night when my page in the evening news came out. So when they couldn't think of a name for the show, I said, what about calling it The Word? So, and I thought, well, if that happens, because I didn't expect the show to be a big success, but I thought I might get an extra £30 a week for me column off uh, the editor of the Manchester Evening News, Mike Unger, Scouser, Liverpool, you know what I mean? Actually, that worked. He did give me exactly £30 a week extra because I was on the telly, and then he could put, the word is Terry Christian. And that's that's why I've named my stand-up show, the word is Terry Christian, because I'm, I'm taking it, I'm taking back control now because the weird thing is, our bosses tried to take my boss at the time, Charlie Parsons, even on the 20th anniversary of the word, he was he was going, uh, um, uh, the, the name The Word came from Andrea Wonfer, who was like one of the big bosses at Channel 4, who'd sadly died. But I knew Andrea Wonfer, she was a Geordie and a great woman. She hadn't come up with that name. It was off my page. <laughs> Bit of a coincidence. But, of course, they could lie then. Now, with Twitter, Facebook, all the rest of it, you just post a picture. Here it is, the Word page. You know, November 89, there it is. You know, a year before the show started or whatever. So it's quite funny, you know, because it, all the lies now bite, bite people back. Once upon a time, they could write what they wanted about you, say what they wanted, and you couldn't challenge them. Now you can just make them look stupid. It's called... Boom, there you go. <laughs> you know, mic drop moment. There is nothing better than doing that. Just saying. When, once upon true. a time, you couldn't do it. it I remember, that's the thing. Uh, Piers Morgan, who I hate, horrible bloke. Even though I think he's supposed to be Irish, he said. You'd want to get rid of him. <laughs> so, Piers Morgan. He used to just, he once made up a thing called uh, Terry Christian, 20 of my favourite things. And this is in the sun in about 1990. And I remember like reading it going, oh, God, I mean, what's this? He goes, uh, so I believe, uh, what's your favourite food? Pizza. <laughs> I mean, what it is, you know, find it a bit boring. Once you've had one slice, forget it. And then it was like, I believe you're into music. And, and then me answering going, yes, I've been listening a lot to the new Jason Donovan album recently. You know, it's like a, a soap star off an Auss on Aussie soap. It was crap, <laughs> you know, proper polite 11-year-old girls. You know, and it was all made up to make me sound like an idiot. But there's no way that I could go, hey, that's not true. Because where could I do it? I couldn't start, step out in the middle of doing a TV show and say, hey, that was a load of rubbish. <laughs> because they were doing it every day. Whereas now you can go, bang, there, have it. That's actually an amazing point. That's, that's a very funny story, actually. Thank you for including it in the interview. And now for my next question, on the word you had... 
um, some great bands like Oasis, um, Rage Against the Machine, and Nirvana, as we were mentioning earlier. And at the time, did you personally, be honest with this, did you think they were going to be big? I mean, I didn't... Here's the weird thing, because I'd managed bands, and what I was noticed was for a band to be big, why I thought Oasis had a chance... I mean, I've been to see them and they weren't that great, but I started hearing good reports because they, they went on tour with a Scottish band called Whiteout that we'd had on the word. They were really young lads. You know, they were only aged like 17, 18. And I remember feeling a bit sorry for them on the word because you could tell we'd jumped the gun to get them on to be too hit. You know, they needed another six months of playing live because it was quite unforgiving, the word. It was live, but the bands normally sounded good. And with Oasis... I had to argue for six weeks to get them on because we already had another band from Manchester on that show who were like all these uh, lads of Pakistani descent called the Khalifs. And they were like a hip-hop group and they had a track out called Vibe the Joint. And they they got quite a good record deal, you know, so they had money behind them off London Records, which is a big label compared to Creation, which is a label that Oasis were on. And all, all, all that I was getting off Tristram and... Sebastian at the time was, oh, Terry, you can't have two bands from Manchester on the same show. And I'd go, well, you'd have two bands from London on the same show, wouldn't you? And, well, that's different. And I said, yes, it is. London's not had a music scene since punk in 1976, because that's the reality. There's not that much has come out of London. You know, they even always try and imply that Britpop is London. I can name about two bands involved in Britpop that were from London. The rest, Hulk were from Sheffield. If it was London pop, it wouldn't be called Brit pop. Well, they always try and they, they always try and take everything over, um, you know. So, it's, it, you know, but sometimes if ever a band breaks through from elsewhere, it's normally despite the people in London, not because of it. You know, the, the, the business in London they don't like anything out of their control. So eventually, we got Oasis on, but but to to tell whether a band was going to be big or not, I would always think if I was a kid sitting in a council house, age 14 or 15, would I want to be the lead singer? Oh, now So I if you look at somebody here. like Liam Gallagher, yes. Also, would girls fancy him? Well, yeah, for Liam Gallagher, yes. But then maybe someone like Sean Ryder out of, out of uh, the Happy Mondays, no. But what Sean Ryder would be would make a girl wish she was a lad so that she could be Sean Ryder, <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, <laughs> and have a mad time. You know, and party, part, party like it's you know, for Imagine he's suffering for it now. It doesn't look well, does it, Sean? But um, but he, he was like, you know, the happy movies were crazy back in the day. Absolutely crazy. They'd all from Salford and Bez. His only job was like to dance like that. You know, on on like he almost like he was on drugs, Logan. Can you imagine that? So anyway, which he may well have been, but it's like uh, so. They had that edge. So when you see that, then you know they're going to be big. You know, I mean, whether they're going to last or not. I mean, I suppose with, with someone like Nirvana, they had a certain look and, it, and a certain sound that had kind of gone out of fashion a bit. But then they came back. Because a lot, a lot of kids, you know, from smaller areas, they like rock music. They like punk. But with all the Manchester stuff and all the rave stuff and, you know, kind of, you know, from the rave scene, they felt a bit left out, and you know because they didn't they didn't want to wear certain clothes or have a certain look, and then suddenly there's someone is just wearing a je jeans and a a check shirt, you know what I mean, and long hair. I thought it was a bit retro, really, Nirvana. I thought we've heard all this before in 1975, but never mind. But it was a great song, you know. Smells like Teen Spirit. Do you know what Teen Spirit is? Um, I know the song, but Teen Spirit, I I don't know the actual. Explanation for it. So, so it's, it was basically like uh, some kind of cheap aftershave or deodorant spray in America that was called Teen oh, Spirit. That's so it's very cheap and nasty, and it was pushed at everyone. So when they when they're talking about smells like Teen Spirit, smells smells like a load of cheap shit and hype. Sorry, did I just use a did I just use a terrible word like cheap? But anyway, you know. So so that's what it was about, really. That song. Um, so, yeah, I mean, with stuff song. like that, I mean, obviously, when you get somebody like, you know, the, a lot of the American acts that we get on, you knew, the, you know, we Mary J. Blige, you knew she was going to be one of the the greatest. I, I just wish we got Lauren Hill on or someone like that. But they were, 
we, we always relied on the Americans actually being over. So we got Snoop Dogg when he was over. We had Coolio on, you know, when he was over. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, we, we had all the big hip-hop groups, Public Enemy. We had them on twice. And in fact, on one of their live albums, no, no, they've got an album, and uh, they, it's got them performing on the word. You know, I mean, you can hear me introducing them with my weird accent. I and would, then the audience in the background. I would check that out. Wow. Well, well, I mean, a, a lot of, I mean, the stuff we had, you know, uh, Cypress Hill with Insane in the Brain. We had all the great kind of hip-hop yeah. stuff. We had, we had bits of reggae, like Shabba Ranks and what have you. But, I mean, we should have had a bit more reggae on. Um, but, you know, so, you know, we, we had also, we had Sinead O'Connor on, but she didn't sing one of her own songs. She sang with uh, a guy called Jar Wobble. He's also John Wardle. He's also Irish, she said. But he's from London, but lives around the corner from me now. And he was the bass player in Public Image with uh, John Lydon. And then, oh. he, then he formed his own band, but he did all sort of weird, like, weird uh, world music. And she was doing a song, singing a song for him called Visions of You. And that's when I met her. And she was fantastic. She was great. You know, everyone would always think, because she was a huge star, and she was always portrayed as being really awkward. But that's, she would have been awkward with people who were a bit, how can I put it? Fake people don't like anyone who's real. Because it makes yeah. them feel exposed. You know, often people who are very jealous are quite fake because they don't have any integrity. So they try and attack people that 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 they feel too real to try and drag them yeah. down to their level. And uh, Sinead O'Connor was great, so she was a good laugh, chatting to her beforehand. Uh, then she had a boyfriend there. Then she came on. She came on the show, but she'd only come on to do Jar Wobble a favor because he wasn't a big name, although I knew him. So I was really glad that she'd done that as a favor for him to get him on a show like that. So he was on the couch to be interviewed by me and Boy George and Sinead O'Connor. Wow. And Sinead O'Connor and Boy George had, had had like an argument in the press or something. So it was that like that weird tension. We had Whitney Houston on. With Boy George, and they'd had some of that in it. Boy George was always having a dig at everyone. Mind you, he's an Irish descent as well, isn't he? George O'Dowd, Dubliners, his mum and dad. So That's... all the troublemakers, all the talent and the troublemakers. But yeah, Sinead O'Connor was fantastic. You know, really That's... lovely. You know, quite shy, but you know, really, really clever and funny. You know what I mean? Had a sense of humour. I was a bit cheeky with her. So if you ever watched the clip, at the end, you know, because she's only come on as a favour for Jar Wobble. She won't come on a crappy show like ours to do her own stuff. And <laughs> at the end, I said, oh, well, maybe next time, you be, you know, you can come on with your own band. And she went, yeah, maybe, as if to say no chance. But she had been talking that she was going to be in a film about Joan of Arc, you know, St. Joan of Arc. <laughs> and so I said, or maybe we'll just show a clip of you being burnt at the stake, because that's what happened to Joan of Arc. You know, obviously, she led the French in, like, the 15th century against the English <laughs> in uh, in France. Oh and when gosh. they caught, they tried, you know, because she rallied them all up, you know, like she was seeing visions of, of God and the Virgin Mary and stuff. So it made the French troops fight harder to push the, you know, the, the English out of France, because England used to hold about a third of France at that time. And uh, when the when the court they tried her as a witch and burnt her at the stake, lovely story that isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a beautiful story. A sticky um, end. Yeah. The old paper sticky ends the saints. When when we were when we were younger at Catholic school, we used to get a saint story about twice a week. You know, at primary school, but they don't come to. You'd be having nightmares about what happened to them. You know, Saint Sebastian shot full of arrows. You know. Oh, my Saint-Tropez in France, beheaded. You know, so it's a place in France, but it's named after a proper saint. He was beheaded, and then his corpse and his head were put in a boat with two hungry dogs. And then when the boat floated back, a short <laughs> after two days, the dogs hadn't eaten the body. So obviously it was, uh, it was, it was uh, a saint. <laughs> okay. Moving <Sorry>. on. <laughs> so... Um, you've done TV, radio, and as we were saying earlier, you wrote for um a magazine as well. But you still managed. Do you ever sleep? You still managed a twelve-piece reggae band called Junior C Reaction. Yeah, fantastic. How yeah, did that from Derby. Well, I mean, I just saw them. I went to uh, <laughs> they, 
Three of them have been in a band that should have made it in the late 70s called the Pressure Shocks, who were one of the first British reggae bands. But the, the lead singer, Errol Cowell, who was Junior C, had such an amazing voice. And I remember going to the meeting him, I heard a record that he was doing called Close to Me. I thought it was a bit too lover's rock, but it said his voice was amazing. And I'd heard of the pressure shots. And so he, he was playing a playing a gig at the Afro-Caribbean Club on Osmiston Road in Derby. And I remember going down there and it was something like a Thursday night. And it, it, it I mean it was full-ish. It wasn't even, but I just thought this band are amazing. And I was a big reggae fan anyway. And um and then we added different, because at that time they were 10 piece with two sax players. And then I found a trumpet and trombone player, because we used to use a trumpet player from a reggae band in Nottingham, uh, you know, when we, when we made demo tapes and stuff. And yeah, I mean, that, that was like weird. That's when you saw like real racism. <laughs> you know, if you're managing a reggae band, I got them signed to a record deal with Chrysalis, Cool Tempo. And they just, uh, they just had a hit with a band called Go West. And I remember when our second single was coming out, we got offered the UB40 support slot for £10,000. That was the buy-on. And for that, you get to use their great equipment. You're playing in front of big audiences, you know, Barrowlands in Glasgow, Birmingham NEC. You know, you talk like 10,000, 20,000 people every night. And uh, so that's cheap. And a record company would go, yeah, that's good. That'll be good for future sales. And they wouldn't do it. And then I found out that this band, Go West, hated them. <laughs> The, the guy who made their video was in the band 10CC, a bloke called Kevin Godley. In fact, he did all the U2 videos later on. And he was from Manchester. And he said, well, I don't know about that, Terry. He said, they gave me 12,000 quid just to get one of the guy's teeth straightened to look good in the video. <laughs> so that was the difference. But, yeah, I mean, I mean, don't, don't, just to do those things, it was exciting. And sometimes when you don't believe in yourself a lot, you can maybe do more for other people. You find it easy to sell other people than you do sell yourself. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, that, I mean, that that was an interesting time doing Junior C. I and mean, there's still a couple of the records you can hear on uh, YouTube. Uh, Better Must Come, which is the original demo, which only cost eighty quid to make. That's on YouTube. And then uh, Cry Jehovah, which is uh, what John Peel used to play before we got signed to a major. That's what was out, you know. And now what am I doing? Stand up, stand up comedy. You know. I'm doing Amazing. the rounds, but that's good. It's good fun. Actually, next, I, oh, sorry, the, the headphone wanted to get off for a second. I pulled on the the yoke. But anyways, I also want to now move on to your stand-up comedy, and this is very interesting. Um, You also do stand-up, obviously, and you have a new show, which I'll come back to, and that's huge. But my question is, as I was saying earlier, TV, radio, You've done some writing, uh, including writing three books. Um, yeah, and there they are. So There's one. The, o the Oasis oh, one. That's amazing. There's news about that soon. There's the Word one. That's and class. that one was about growing up Irish descent in Old Trafford and Man United. Finishing in 1977, called Reds in the Hood, when we beat Liverpool and stopped them doing the treble. <laughs> That's actually, that's amazing. So all four of those things and stand-up comedy. This is the big question. And this is a hard question. Do you have a preference? Me, writing, but I do love the stand-up because suddenly it's, it's a freeing thing. It, it's, it's a pure bottle job. The first time you do it, you're going, Ooh, you know, and you, you chase the laughs and you try and be funny and... So I'd say with anything you do, it takes, even with a band, it's going to take at least 12 gigs before they're going to sound half decent. Before they sound good, it's going to take 30 gigs, maybe even 40. And that's the same with anything in life. You know, it's a bit like, you know, as a kid, when you go on a computer game and you, you keep getting killed or you keep getting beat 10-0. And then once you get used to it, you know, if at first you don't succeed, you try, try, you learn it, don't you? You learn it, yeah. and that's 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 the whole secret to life. There is no secret, and anyone can do anything. It's just about having the bottle to do it, you know, to say, okay, I'm going to have a go. And with the stand-up thing, so the first one I did was called Naked Confessions of a Recovering Catholic, which is kind of about the the, the silly things, you know, like the saints. I, I do a slideshow of the saints and what yeah. they do. You know, <laughs> if you can't 
find anything to say, Anthony. And I <laughs> say, what a reward for his life where God says, right, you're going to spend eternity having to listen to everyone moaning at you because he can't find the keys. So it was that kind of stuff. And then, but well, I used to do a Q&A in it and everyone would ask about the word. And that's why I built this show now. So it's clips of the word. And then obviously comedy built around them. Over 18s only though, this show. There's some very naughty stuff in there. Fair <laughs> enough. We won't go into that. Well, I, um... did, I did the Sugar Club in Dublin uh, back in February, and that was great. You know what I mean? So it was Friday night crowd, heckling a bit, but being good, you know, good. And then I'm doing Belfast on the 23rd of September at the Black Box. Um, and then I'm doing Dublin Sugar Club again on October the 6th. So, so you know, maybe you're, sneak in, you're sneak in, put, wear a false beard and moustache. <laughs> you're you're all go with all these different things, Terry. Well, well I'm doing mo most of the gigs obviously are over this side, but it's like it's yeah. nice to. I mean, I'm I'm only going to Belfast because I'm doing a BBC TV show there the following day, so they're paying for the flights <laughs> and the hotel. So I thought, well, I might as well squeeze the gig in there while I'm there. You know what I mean? Make a make a few extra bob and see how it goes. Perfect. And now, next, for my last question, I just want to ask you about your show that's coming up in Belfast, 23rd of September, uh, called Words Terry Christian, The Naughty 90s, and more. Could you tell us a little bit about it, to leave out a bit of the naughtiness for younger <laughs> well, listeners? Well, I mean, it's basically clips of the show. So, I mean, one of the, uh, when I was doing this, to give you an example, so obviously we, we do the Happy Mondays, you know, and about... What, what they got up to. <laughs> they were funny. You know, the Happy Mondays. Um, yeah. we, we show clips of Oasis and Nirvana performing. But then it, it's other little clips. So it's Ollie Reed, Oliver Reed when he came on the show drunk. It's uh, I will show the clip, you know, some clips of Sinead O'Connor when she was on. Uh, so it's stuff like that, stuff that people talk, talk about quite a lot when they talk about the word, some of the more famous clips. And then even the posh girl that I did it with, uh, Amanda de Cadenet, and she came from a multi-multi-millionaire family. You know, her dad was a racing car driver, won Le Mans twice, Alan de Cadenet, sports car racer. And uh, I remember once we sent her to uh, Prestatin Pontins, where they had a soul weekender on, <laughs> you know, as an outside broadcast, you know, going in live to the show. And uh, she said, <laughs> I'll never forget this, you know, because we were in rehearsal in the studio, and she was going, where will I be staying? And someone said, a chalet. <laughs> it's like a holiday camp chalet. But with her being really rich, she thought it was like one of those chalets you get in the Swiss Alps, you know, where you stay to go skiing, you know, with a with a sauna in the basement and a full a full oh staff, my God. You know, a view of the mountains. <laughs> Whereas I knew that, that that chalet, you know, looked more like what Charles Bronson was tunneling out of in uh, The Great Escape, that old movie, you know, like a prisoner of war camp. But then the worst thing she said, she said, do people actually go on holiday here? I mean, God, not only did we used to go on holiday at Pontins, we'd be so excited as kids, we couldn't sleep for three weeks. We're going to Pontins on holiday. <laughs> and she was going, oh, my God, people actually go on holiday here. <laughs> oh, my God. It, it, was like a, it was like a cheaper version of Buckland's Pontins. I don't think they had one in Ireland. Um, No. We don't have we don't have butlins in Ireland, definitely not. No, no, but um, Irish people come over to England yeah. to go to Pontins in Ireland, but more likely uh, butlins and Pontins. But they would more likely have got butlins because it had more going on. You, you had, you had yeah. a free fairground there and all that stuff. Yeah, I'd, I, I, I'm not sure if people actually go over there, but I do know we don't have one in Ireland. But I have heard of butlins a lot. Um, but I know what you're saying. I do know what you're saying. Um, but that's that's a very funny story. Well, so it's kind of stuff like that. But then there's jokes in it and about, you know, associations and, you know, so uh, bits about how I ended up working in that business, you know, and about being Irish. Not necessarily things that I can do on your show or talk about on your show, although we sail close to the wind at times. But no, yeah. Yeah, like I said, it's, it's good fun. And I'll go in hard on them in Belfast. You know, you know what they always say to you? The minute you get in a taxi in Belfast, the taxi driver says, Great here, Terry. See that? H and W, Harland and Wolf. I said, Yeah. He said, That's where we built the Titanic. I go, Do you know what? 
It didn't even make it one way. <laughs> if we built the Titanic in Manchester, we'd keep quiet about it. <laughs> so, so they've even got T-shirts made in Belfast now about the Titanic going, it was okay when it left here. <laughs> You know, as if it's not there. Oh, that's very clever. Oh, that's very clever. But they used to do that when you you went to Belfast. They'd tell me about the Titanic. Then they'd point out, see, that's the Europa Hotel, Terry. That's the most bombed hotel in in Europe. Lovely. (laughs) See, that's the Crown Pub. That's the most bombed pub (laughs) in Europe. You go, okay, well, that's off my list of places to go tonight (laughs) when I need a pint. You know, you're thinking, you're not helping your tourist industry here. <laughs> oh, my God, that's so funny. They're like us going, Manchester going, oh, yeah, over there, that's that's where that's where the Peterloo massacre happened in 1860. Over crazy. there, that's where City Fan was stabbed in a fight in 1973. It's yeah. mad. It's mad what people say, though, without realising the consequences. When it's the taxi drivers. <laughs> hey, you know, you, maybe maybe it would be better for their tourist industry if they stopped that. <laughs> That's mad. At least Derry's got Derry girls, hasn't it? <laughs> true, that is true. Um, and there's a seaside nearby. Yeah, well, yeah, that is true. That God, it is very true. Yeah, there's some comments that are made are very weird. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I. That was the last question. Okay, answer, fantastic. You answered it perfectly. And thank you so much for joining me on Logan Sounds Off. Thank you so hey, much, Thanks, Terry. Logan. Great job. And have a great evening. Bye, Terry. Fantastic. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Logan Sounds Off. And if you have any questions or requests, you can email Logan Sounds Off at gmail.com